You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read, You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Then he left them went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mm. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. Hey, if this is your first time, my name is Jamal, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. We are so glad that you um, are here tonight, and we pray that a song will be sung or words spoken that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into today's text and see where the Lord takes us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to worship you. And I pray, Father God, that zeal for uh, your heart and zeal for your house would, um, would cultivate our heart to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray for these, your people who are here tonight to hear a word from you. I pray for the person who is here tonight to just learn more about uh, Jesus or, or what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I pray wherever we are, whether we feel near or far, that you would meet us. So Lord, we pray that you would just have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back in our Matthew series, and last week we looked at the passage before that this text, which is traditionally known as Jesus's triumphal entry. And we titled last week's sermon, uh, In Comes the King. And if I had to title this week's sermon, it will be In Comes the King, part two. Last week we saw how Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem during what we call uh, Passion Week. This is uh, the last week of Jesus's life. And in entering into Jerusalem, um, he fulfilled a prophecy that was recorded in an Old Testament book uh, called Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 7, there's a prophecy uh, that we call a messianic prophecy that pointed to uh, this Jewish Messiah who will one day enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem the last week of his life. He knows he's about to be crucified. He rides into the city on a donkey and he's receiving praise. He's receiving praise from people who are excited that, uh, that he's coming in. They've heard about this great teacher. They have hopes that he is the Messiah. And in essence, we looked at that passage and we talked about how with Jesus, either you're going to crown him as king or... You're going to crucify him, but he won't stand to be merely liked. That Jesus is this controversial figure that either you will embrace as Lord or your heart will rebel towards him 
and you will reject the claims that he makes about himself. And so this week, we want to continue this theme of Jesus as king by by looking at Jesus in this passage and how, once again, before he is crucified, in fact, I'll argue what's going to get him crucified is him making some bold claims and some bold statements that agitated and kind of drew was the last straw for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So, for example, we're going to see that he's going to cleanse the temple. And upon cleansing the temple, he's going to quote Jeremiah chapter 9. And then after that, we see that he's going to receive praise from young children in the temple. Um, Praise that should only be reserved for uh, the divine. And then he's going to quote a scripture to support why he should receive that praise. And then finally, we're going to look at how Jesus is going to claim his kingship by cursing a fig tree. And this fig tree is going to, to wither. When we read the Synoptic Gospels, we'll see that it's going, to, uh, it's going to take course over the course of a day. Matthew uh, kind of tells it in a way that makes it seem like it, it happened instantly. But, but this fig tree is going to be cursed, and it's just going to wither away, and the disciples are going to take notice of it. And this, again, is Jesus claiming his authority as king. But here's what I want us to walk away with today that either we are going to reject uh, this empty religion and embrace this kind of relational fullness in Christ, um, or we're going to be found like Israel, being people who go through spiritual motions, but who are never truly satisfied, and people who are self-deceived. And so Jesus today is once again saying, I am king, I am Lord, and I I am inviting you into a relationship with me where there is fullness, where there is joy, where there is fruit. I want you to see two kind of movements as we look at this text. And these two movements are going to look at the posture of the religious leader's heart in the passages that we just read. The first is the the posture of their hearts were bent towards kind of wealth and not authentic worship. It was bent towards them building their own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. We see in verse 12 that Jesus goes into the temple and the Bible says that he throws out all those who were buying and selling And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, what in the world is going on here? Why is Jesus uh, throwing a tantrum? Well, he's actually not throwing a tantrum. This is a calculated move by Jesus. And this is not him just going off in a moment. This is something that he's probably planned. Uh, Jesus is maybe around 33 years old at this point. We know when he was 12 years old, he was in the temple teaching. Um, We also know, according to John's gospel, that this isn't the first time that Jesus has thrown over money tables in a temple. This is probably the second time. We also know in the synoptic gospels that Jesus didn't just throw them over, but he also made a whip. Um, And the whip that is uh, spoken of in uh, the synoptic gospels is a whip that would have taken some time to make. So Jesus is actually under control, and this anger that he has, this zeal that he has is for his father's house. 
and it is a righteous anger. There's a difference between a righteous anger and human anger. Righteous anger is God-centered, and it's an anger that, that comes because one wants to see the name of God glorified and exalted. One wants to see God's name uh, remain true, good, and beautiful in the, in the sight of others. A human anger generally uh, is centered on us or what we want, our desires, our needs, and so forth. Jesus' anger right here is for the glory of his Father. Why? Because the temple, the temple was, was a place that God uh, ordained and called Solomon to, uh, to, 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 to create with specificity. The temple was a place that was supposed to be uh, about a sacrifice and that was supposed to remind us about uh, uh, God's love for us in that he made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. The sacrificial system was supposed to point us to the fact that we deserve death for the wages of sin is death, but God has made a way. The temple was supposed to be a place of meditation. It was supposed to be a place of hope. It was supposed to be a place of, of worship where people came to experience the palpable presence of God. The temple is, is where the holies of holies was. The ark of the, the covenant, the temple was special. But when Jesus went to the temple, it wasn't. God's presence really couldn't be felt. It wasn't quiet. It was noisy. And the sacrifices that were being made in general wasn't from a genuine and authentic heart of worship as much as it was simply going through the motions. And Jesus longed for Israel to experience the temple as it was meant to be experienced. It was David who wrote this, even though he was most likely reflecting on on the, the tabernacle. He says, I have asked one thing from the Lord, and it is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing at the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. This is what Jesus wanted for Israel, for the temple to be an encounter in a space that was safe, with those who were poor in spirit, those who mourned, those who long hungered and thirsted after righteousness can come together collectively and experience God. But instead, Jesus pronounces judgment on what's happening in the temple by quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, which says, It was written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. And we read Jeremiah chapter 7 earlier on in the worship service, as we see that when Jeremiah spoke this word to Judah, uh, Israel was in a place in which they were worshiping false idols. They will worship um, the God of, of Baal throughout uh, the week, and then they would come and make sacrifices. They were not being faithful in their marriage. They were not keeping Sabbath. Um, they, in essence, were living duplicitous lives. And then they were coming to the temple and they were using the fact that they regularly went to the temple as an excuse for why they were going to be safe from judgment. 
And they were listening to false prophets telling them that everything's going to be okay. You're not going to be taken captive. Babylon, Babylon won't take you over because you're, you're doing okay. Just keep going to the temple, the temple, the temple. And it was false worship. And Jesus is saying to Israel, you all are just like Judah. I look around and there's money tables and, and money changers. And they, there, there should have been, according to the Old Testament law, there, there was a place for that. But it was bloated. And the temple became about political and social power rather than spiritual power. And so Jesus calls them out. And then we see not only was there this uh, kind of cultivation of the heart where the, the people of Israel, who was led by the religious leaders, uh, care more about wealth than sincere worship. We also see that they cared. Uh, they had a posture of their heart that was bent uh, towards those who appeared whole and who neglected those who were hurting. And this was totally counterintuitive to, to God's heart. Uh, the blind and the lame were rejected. Those who uh, were not uh, 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 true uh, to, to Israel was, was often looked down upon. The, the temple became a place of barriers and separation rather than inclusion and love. And it's interesting here in verse 14 that the Bible says that the blind and the lame, they came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. So imagine Jesus is going in his temple and he's just throwing over tables and he's got his whip out and he's cracking it and he's, you hear him mumbling something and he's quoting scripture while he does it. And then all of a sudden there's a group of people who are hurting and who are often overlooked and they go towards him and not away from him. It's as if they actually felt and experienced that God was present. It was as if they were actually able to see this is right. This is a, a, a true prophet. God is at work and he is amongst us. While the spiritual leaders, the, the Pharisees and, and the scribes, though they could physically see and though their bodies were physically whole, they were spiritually blind and they were spiritually crippled. Remember, it was in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 where Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount that he told those whom he just healed uh, from, from Galilee that those who are blessed in God's kingdom are those who are what? Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Remember, it was Jesus who just said a couple chapters before that, that he did not come to, to save uh, 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 those who had it together, but rather he came to seek and to save the lost. And the religious leaders were so prideful that they actually missed when God was amongst them. They were so self-centered and practicing such a, what James would call a worthless religion, that God himself walked amongst them. The, the, the one whom which the temple was created for visited the temple, and they couldn't recognize it. But the blind did. And the lame did. 
and the blind left seeing, and the lame left whole. Next verse is absolutely fascinating. When the chief priests, so these are the, the top dogs. These are the ones who are at the, the top of the spiritual ladder. And the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna, save us to the son of David. And they were angry. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are, are saying? And Jesus replied, yes, have you never read? And this is a, a common phrase that we see throughout the gospels that Jesus say. In other words, don't you know your Torah? Don't you know your Old Testament? It was him taking a jab at him. And then here is, is unique. He's going to quote Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is an interesting psalm. It's a psalm about uh, the creation of, 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 uh, of, of the world, the beauty of creation and how God has formed it. The earth declares the glory of God, right? And how it's his handiwork. And in Psalm 8, there's this phrase where he says, you have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. And so Jesus quotes this psalm at him, and it's as if he's saying this word children in verse 15 also can mean young men or young boys. It's more likely that these uh, were young men who were in the temple who had watched this, and they're uh, in for Passover week. They're there to celebrate. They see tables flip. They see blind eyes open, and they're like, yo, that's crazy. That's great. And all of a sudden, they start quoting this psalm like, this must be the Messiah. This is amazing. And it's as if Jesus is saying, you are upset that these young men are praising me. When didn't the scripture say that even infants, those who are two or three years of age, would praise the Messiah? This is Jesus laying down some serious kingship. This is, is Jesus throwing a spiritual backhand at the religious leaders. I mean, he is pulling out scripture over and over. He's like, y'all, y'all don't even understand. Y'all don't know who y'all messing with. This is why I came. They should be praising me. They should be worshiping me. They should be at all. They should be amazed. And not only should they, but you should too. If you knew who was amongst you. And then we get to this last movement. This last movement, verse 18. It says, early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a long fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. And when the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And so in this last story, which may seem disconnected, but it's, it's really not. Uh, Matthew, remember, he's a great theologian. He has spent decades writing this letter. Okay. He has spent decades. A lot of times when we read the gospel, we think it's just story, one story, one paragraph, one paragraph, and the author is just kind of all over the place. He's not all over the place. This is a beautiful tapestry 
which is put together very intentionally. Everything in this passage is about God's judgment. Jesus enters into the temple judgment because they are using the house of God in vain. It's supposed to be a place of prayer and intimacy and has become about business and pockets and politics. Right. And now what he's going to do is he's going to curse this fig tree and this fig tree is symbolic for Israel. It's symbolic for when God visited Israel, lived amongst them for 30 some odd years. And when he inspected their fruit and hoped to see fruit instead, all he got was leaves. An outward religion with no spiritual fruit. And we'll get more into this in Matthew 24 and talk about this judgment of Israel and how Jesus is going to get even more specific in Matthew 24. And then we'll look at historically how Jesus' judgment eventually came to pass in about 70 AD as the temple was going to be destroyed brick by brick um, by the Romans. But this is Jesus casting judgment on his people. And he's not doing it. This, the wrath of God is, is not... Uh, a sign of impatience is is not a, a sign of like this childlike wrath. No, God is jealous for his people. He wants more for his people. He, he disciplines those he loves just like a loving father disciplines his children. And he always disciplines his children with the hope that they will repent and return to him. This is after decades of decades of decades of rebellion. How hard of, of a heart that Israel had. They had a heart that was so hard that Emmanuel, God, was with them. And they couldn't recognize it. So this was a justified judgment. You know, some people say, well, God is love. Yes, God is love. But a just God also has to have the ability to have wrath. All of the sum of God is equally perfect. And and one who is morally pure and morally perfect cannot look at sin and not cast judgment on it. This is why Jesus came to die. He came to die the death that we all deserve because a morally perfect God cannot embrace sinners and still remain just without their sins being paid for. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There is a way to escape God's wrath. There's a way to receive forgiveness of sin and and be reconciled to God. And it's through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and who is also 100 percent man who came and lived on this earth and died the death we deserve so that we could be justified, made right with God. So what do we do with this text? There's there's a couple things I want you to think about. One question I want to ask you is, if you're a Christian, I want you to consider this and think about this more uh, metaphorically, this idea of the temple. Uh, We we no longer, uh, Jesus said that the day was coming, John chapter 4, 
where you'll no longer go to a temple to, to worship. He says, but those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Ephesians chapter uh, uh, 2 and Ephesians uh, chapter 4 point to the people of God as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that you are the temple. And so my question for you, Christian, is as the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, indwelling his church, as he's walking through the outer gates of your heart, as he's walking into the inner courts, as he's walking into the holies of holies, the deepest part of you, what is he finding? What is he finding? Is he finding more of a desire for God's kingdom to be magnified and glorified in your heart or your kingdom? Is he finding habitual manipulation and habitual uh, a pursuit of, of, of personally building your earthly kingdom? Or is he finding what Jesus said we ought to be cultivating in Matthew 6, 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, life with God under his rule, and all these things will be added. What's he finding in your temple? What tables do you need to cry out to Jesus today and say, Jesus, flip over this table, turn over this table, take this desire, take this pursuit of life from me? Second, is if you're a fig tree today, and if Jesus was to inspect the fruit uh, of the tree of, of called your life, under the leaf, under the outward, under the external, would there be fruit there? Is there evidence of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, and gentleness? Are you abiding in Christ in such a way where that is being cultivated in you? Or are you kind of just coasting through life right now, passively, uh, passively, being in Christ? Are you actively pursuing him where his fruit is being manifested in your heart? Here's the thing. Here's why Jesus is so amazing. Is that even today, no matter how you (laughs) answered that question, is that that his kindness and, and this reminder in his word is meant not to crush you, But his kindness is is meant to invite you into a deeper way of living, a better way of living, a way of experiencing abundant life and joy and peace. And that comes under his lordship and his kingship. It comes when we quiet our hearts and we stop fighting with and against God and we submit and say, Lord, you are Lord of my life. Take over. So how do we cultivate hearts that are receptive in this way? We do two things. One, we pray. We cultivate a lifestyle of prayer. And I'm, in, in intimacy with God, prayers is conversing with God. It's just talking to him and it's listening to God. And why do I say that as an application? Well, when you look at this text, you see that prayer is the emphasis. 
As Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he was met by prayer, with prayer. In verse 13, he emphasizes the temple being the uh, the house of prayer. In verse 15, Hosanna to the Son of God. That's a prayer. Later on, we see in uh, Jesus essentially cursing the fig tree, praying. And then finally, Jesus answers the disciples when they're amazed that the fig tree has dried up. He answers them by pointing them to prayer. Listen to these words. Truly, I tell you. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, what is Jesus saying here? When Jesus talks about having faith without doubting, he's not saying praying without questioning. Right? When we look at the Psalms, uh, we see the psalmist teaching us how to pray. And sometimes the psalmist asks questions. Go home and read Psalm 13, Psalm 22. We see Jesus himself wrestling with God in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Father. Father, if there's any way that you could take this cup, this wrath that I'm about to experience on the cross from me, Lord, Lord, do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. We see on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So when Jesus talked about praying prayers of faith without doubting, he's not saying put your faith in faith. When he talks about not doubting, he's saying not doubting in who he is. Not doubting that he is the son of God. Not doubting that he is the one who can make all things right. Your faith is like a windshield. It's what we use to see through in order to see Jesus. Windshields sometimes have cracks and, and, and little dents. But as long as you can see through that windshield to, to the object that's in front of you. In the same way, our faith is not perfect. That's why Jesus said the faith the size of a mustard seed, right? He has given each of us a, a measure of faith. We exercise that faith, but it's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus. Jesus said, when you come to me with faith that I am who I say I am and you believe that, look at what he says. He uses some hyperbolic language here in order to teach the disciples to pray. He says, you can speak to a mountain, you can uproot a mountain, and that mountain will be gone into the sea. Whatever you ask, it will be done. Now you say, whatever, whatever, yes. When you read it in context, this whatever is not a Mercedes Benz, it's not being a billionaire, it's not uh, this your dream person who is already taken by somebody becoming your person. That's not what he's talking about. Come on, bring your, bring your mind back. That's not the whatever. Amen. Some of y'all are like, wait a minute, Pastor, break this down. I need this whatever to come to pass. Hallelujah. No. What is the context here? The context here is spiritual fruit. This passage is about spiritual, it's about bearing fruit. It's about true worship. Jesus says, when you come to me 
in need, desiring to grow and to be pleasing to me and to bear fruit. And we know throughout the Gospel of Matthew, this emphasis of persisting in prayer. You can have confidence that God is going to conform you into essentially Romans 8, Jesus's image, that he's going to birth in you over time the love, the joy, the patience, the long-suffering that you need. You will be spiritually fruitful. The second is praise. This text reminds us of the importance of praise. If we want to cultivate hearts that of authentic worship, not only do we pray, but we praise. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he was met with praise. As Jesus healed the blind and the lame in the temple, he was met with praise. I'm convinced that some of us, the reason why we are not bearing fruit in our lives is because we never take time to just stop and to praise God. We we don't take inventory on just how good he is and how good he has been. We don't sit and and think about that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that we are indwelled with his spirit. And I just want to close out this sermon just by praising Jesus because he's worthy to be praised. One one passage says that Jesus responded to uh, the Pharisees uh, when he was receiving uh, praise. I believe it's in Mark's gospel as he entered into. He says, listen, if, if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out to me. Praise is what he's due. And so you don't have to join me, but I just, I just invite you to praise Jesus. In the midst of your storm, praise Jesus. In the midst of your heartache, praise Jesus. In the midst of your pain, praise Jesus. Sometimes you got to praise him on credit. In the midst of depression, praise Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about giving him a a sacrifice of praise. He's worthy to be praised. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, he is worthy to be praised. We praise him for his omniscience. Jesus, we praise you for your omnipotence. We, We praise you for your immutability. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you because you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. We praise you because you are the redeemer. Jesus, we worship you. We magnify you. We extol you. There is no one like you. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, we praise you because COVID-19 won't have the victory. Jesus, we praise you because one day there will be no more cancer. There will be no more arthritis. Jesus, we praise you because all things are working together for our good. We praise you for the indwelling of your spirit. We praise you for your word. We praise you that you have not left us to be orphans. We praise you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. We praise you that you went up Golgotha's hill so that we could be redeemed. We praise you that you took a, a crown of thorns on your head and nails in your arms and in your feet. You were hung high and dropped low and stretched wide. We praise you that the tomb is empty. We praise you that you are mediating on the right-hand side of the Father, and we praise you that you're coming back again, that this is not the end of the story. We praise you that we are not victims, but we are victorious. We praise you that you have come to redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We praise you that you are a barrier-breaking God. We praise you because there is none like you, El Shaddai. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. We worship you in the midst of the storm. We lift our hands and we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We praise you, Jesus. We don't praise, we praise you for food on our table and clothes on our back and clothing us with a, a measure of, of being in the right mind. We praise you. We praise you because David couldn't do it, Elijah couldn't do it, Moses couldn't do it, John the Baptist couldn't do it, the angels couldn't do it, but Jesus, we praise you because you could do it. Sometimes you just got to praise, praise him, praise him, praise him because he loves you. Praise you because salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, least any man can boast. Praise him, enter into his courts with thanksgiving. To his courts with praise. Praise him. Praise him. And every week when we gather together to worship, we take a meal called communion. This meal reminds us that Jesus is crazy about us. Crazy, what Beyonce said, crazy love. Jesus got a crazy love. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. A crazy love, a ridiculous love that led him to a cross, to humiliation. And he died for you. And he didn't die just for the future version of you. He died for you as you are. And he's mediating for you. So Christian, I want you to take this meal. Inside your cup is a, a wafer, which represents the body of Jesus broken for you. And I want you to eat and eat all of it. And inside your cup is, is grape juice, which represents the blood of Jesus shed for you. And every week as Christians, we take this meal to remind us of God's love for us. Let's continue in worship. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.